that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the, to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and cop- copper vessels in dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for how it cuts through our ways of seeing the world and practicing religion and shows us what is true. Show us what you see about our hearts. Help us to walk in true righteousness. And please use this passage now to do that work in our hearts. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, today we are talking about hypocrisy. And if when I say the word hypocrisy, uh, your least favorite hypocrite comes to mind, uh, and you think something like, oh man, really they should be in here listening to this sermon instead of me, then I'm glad you're here. Hypocrisy is something all of us are guilty of and all of us need correction in. And of course, that joke that I just told, it's one of the impulses of hypocrisy, that other people need correction, but not us. That's the Pharisees in this passage. They are strutting down from Jerusalem, coming to correct this rabbi Jesus and his disciples who are out of line with their tradition. And little do they know, Jesus is about to point out the plank in their own eye. Hypocrisy. The sin we love to hate in others, but fail to notice in ourselves. 
Today we are talking about hypocrisy, and we're going to answer three questions about it. First, what is hypocrisy? What is hypocrisy? Second, what are the casualties of hypocrisy? What are the casualties of hypocrisy? In other words, what suffers because of hypocrisy? And then third, what is the cure for hypocrisy? What is the cure? So first, what is hypocrisy? Well, there are layers to hypocrisy, and we'll cover just a few in, in the third layer especially, which we'll get to in a moment. But the first and most basic layer of hypocrisy, which most of us are, pretty, are probably familiar with, is not practicing what you preach. Not practicing what you preach. Extolling virtues that you yourself do not live up to, and nor do you even make any sincere effort at living up to them. Okay, so an example would be you know, someone on, on an ethics committee who is embezzling money, or a, a pastor who is uh, having an affair. Okay, uh, th these are aspects of this layer of hypocrisy. In the words of Jesus from Matthew 23, which you might jot Matthew 23 down as, as a chapter to go read to bolster even more your understanding of hypocrisy, but here's what he says. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Okay, so that's the first layer of hypocrisy. Well, the next layer, which is similar, is applying a standard to others that you do not apply to yourself. This is one of the communal angles of hypocrisy. This is the, the seeing the speck in your uh, a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but neglecting the plank in your own eye. It's a hyper awareness and vigilance about pointing out other people's hypocrisy or sin, but having a total lack of concern and awareness about your own. Okay, so this is the kind of hypocrisy that you might see uh, most often on Facebook or Twitter. You know, it's a perfect venue for policing other people's behavior and ways of thinking, while meanwhile curating a very ideal uh, picture of yourself. You know, and I would add, too, that I think one of the reasons we gravitate toward this practice of, of hypocrisy is that it is a very fitting distraction from our own sin. If we're so busy pointing out other people's sins, what do we not have to pay attention to? Our own. And instead, we cultivate this sense of superiority. Okay, So these are, are two layers of hypocrisy. A third layer, and probably its most insidious form, and the one that we're going to focus on mostly today, is feigned devotion to God. Feigned devotion to God. Fake spirituality. We see this in verse 6. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The most insidious form of hypocrisy is feigned devotion. Described here, lips that honor God, but a heart that is far from him. It's an act. It's a show. And in fact, that idea of acting is baked into the word hypocrite itself. Here's how one commentator puts it. When Jesus refers to the Pharisees as hypocrites, he takes a term from the theater. 
to, uh, meaning to play a part on stage. Especially in Greek theater, actors wore various masks according to the roles they impersonated. The word hypocrite, accordingly, comes to mean someone who acts a role without sincerity, hence a pretender. Hypocrisy is playing a part. It is idolatry masquerading as devotion. I'm reminded of a comment and joke one of my seminary professors made once about sweaters. It was just before class, and a student had complimented his sweater, and he said, well, thank you, but I must confess, I'm wearing this sweater because my shirt is full of wrinkles. Remember, a good sweater covers a multitude of sins. And the great little line, and serves as a good illustration of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is like a good sweater over a bad shirt. It's a cover-up. It's a show. It's masking what's really beneath. And for the Pharisees, you know, all the cleansing rituals that they were describing, they have the appearance of holiness and devotion. But Jesus knows what's beneath, hearts that are far from God. In fact, one of the reasons he returns at the end of our passage to this idea of cleanliness is to underscore their hypocrisy. There's a juxtaposition. All this effort that they are putting towards cleansing the outside of things, what are they totally neglecting? The actual law of God. Their hearts are full of evil. Their devotion isn't real. And so what is hypocrisy? It is idolatry masquerading as devotion. It is the appearance of holiness that is covering a heart of pride. And it is performative. It is a performative disunity between your behavior and the intentions of your heart. So that is what hypocrisy is. Well, what are the casualties of the of hypocrisy. Point number two, what are the casualties of hypocrisy? Well, there are three that we see in this passage, and, and they all go together as a unit. And these are the three, the word of God, the people of God, and the worship of God. That is, these three things will suffer where hypocrisy is practiced. So first, the word of God suffers. We get this from Jesus' words in verse 8. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. Where is he getting that? Well, all of the cleansing rituals described in the first part of the passage, you know, washing of hands and utensils, vessels and even couches, you will not find those teachings in the Bible. They are not in the Torah, where God's law, or the first five books of the Bible, where God's law is recorded. God does give some instructions to priests about, about cleansing before they do worship or perform worship in the temple. And, and there's a, a teaching about cleansing uh, yourself if you uh, have been in contact with someone with a bodily discharge. But none of, which me- none of what's mentioned here will you find in the Old Testament. So where did it come from? Well, these are the result of uh, hundreds of years of rabbinic teaching that accumulated to what is often called the Mishnah, or the oral tradition. Okay, so it's a law set up, uh, an oral law attached to the written law that God has given. And I'd like to quote an explanation from this commentary, as it explains it so well. Rabbis promoted the idea that Moses had received two laws on Mount Sinai. 
the written Torah, and the oral Mishnah. The Mishnah called the oral interpretation a fence around the Torah. Fence being understood as preservation of the integrity of the written law by elaborating every conceivable implication of it. The Torah alone, according to advocates of the oral tradition, was, to, was believed to be too ambiguous to establish and govern the Jewish community. Okay, so then they sent this law, a uh, series of laws around the Torah to help people uh, obey it. So, for example, suppose in your home you have two written rules in your home. Be kind and be truthful. And these are, are written ab above the doorway of your home. Well, suppose one night at dinner uh, a child says to you, can we outline specifically how we're going to practice truthfulness in this house. And it leads to this discussion that goes on for some, some time until you have uh, developed a list of 100 sub-rules about how to be truthful, okay, including rules like always tell on each other, correct one another in public. If you see something unbecoming about your brother or sister, tell them immediately and directly. You know, if you think your brother's smile is ugly and dumb, tell him. You know, these, the, the rules would get outlandish. Well, if you were to practice all of these rules in your house, what other law would start to suffer? Be kind. Be kind. The, the Mishnah had become a commentary and an expansion on the Torah so intricate and detailed and myopic that it had thoroughly lost touch with the intent of the Torah. So much so that, ironically, it went against the Torah itself it had become an impediment to the very word it was supposed to help guide in, the application, in its application. And so the word of God suffers. Well, Jesus gives an example of another way in which this causes uh, uh, harm, and that is the second casualty, that the people of God suffer. The people of God suffer. And you see this in verses 9 through 13. Because where God's word is abused or neglected, so too is his care, the care of his people. And Jesus is, uses, uh, brings up the example of the practice of Corbin. So Corbin, like the cleansing rituals that we just read about, was a rabbinic custom meant to guide the application of the Torah. And in this case, it concerns a property devoted to the Lord. So in the Old Testament, there is a category of, of there's a law of, there are laws about devoting things to the Lord but what's happened here is they have built little laws around that law such that the application of it has lost its way and here's how it would work if if, if I had property and I declare it Corbin it belongs to God but I maintain possession of that property until I die at which point it passes into the, into the possession of the temple. Well, who might be incentivized to make sure that once something is declared Corbin, it can be used for no other reason whatsoever? The Pharisees. Because they are going to benefit from wealth pouring into the temple. And so, what, has become, what, what, what began as a good thing, devoting something to the Lord, was commandeered by the Pharisees to pack the temple treasury. Corbin had become a greedy financial practice wrapped in the appearance of godliness. Look at me, I'm giving things to God at the expense 
of those that God calls his people to honor and care for, such as your father and mother. You have property that you could sell to care for them, but you do not. And so Jesus cuts it straight. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. God has told you to honor your father and mother, and your own traditions won't let you do that. And so the casualties of hypocrisy that we have seen so far is that God's word is nullified or nullified and twisted beyond recognition, and as a result, the community begins to suffer. And this leads to the third casualty, which is the worship of God. The worship of God. Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. God is not interested in the outward displays of worship when the heart, when the interior is so far from him and when his word is disobeyed. The prophet Amos, uh, God's word came to Amos about this subject, and here's what God says. You get a sense for his thoughts and feelings about empty worship. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. In the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God does not want our performative worship. In fact, he hates it. He wants our actual obedience to his actual Word. You know, for example, if you are awful to your wife all day, if you tell her, if you, you know, if you yell at her in the morning and you ignore her during the day and you lash out at your kids and you come home drunk, but you come home with flowers, will that have won her heart over? No. What would she do with those flowers? Throw them in the trash. Because they are divorced from the intentions of your heart. This is the kind of worship that God is describing in this passage in Amos. Worship that is divorced from the heart. God cannot be fooled. Worship is an essential unity. It is reverence for God. And you cannot revere God while avoiding his word and harming his people. But this is always what happens with hypocrisy. You keep up the act, whatever the cost. And there is always a cost. Let me point out here that the wrath of God stands uniquely against hypocrisy. Nothing in the Gospels gets Jesus riled up like hypocrisy. When Jesus confronts hypocrisy, there you find his strongest language. He hates it. You know, some of you have suffered greatly because of hypocrisy in the home, in a religious community, especially from religious leaders. And by the way, you know, we've been in the community, community long enough where you may have interacted with my own hypocrisy. And if that is the case, if my hypocrisy has ever hurt you or caused you to stumble, I am sorry. And I would ask, please come and tell me 
so that I can apologize to you and ask for your forgiveness. If you have suffered at the hand of hypocrisy, I want you to know this. Jesus is your defender. Jesus here in this passage and in others rises up to confront hypocrisy because he is zealous for the word of God and for the people of God and for the worship of God. These are his treasures and he will defend them from the wolves. And so take comfort. Hypocrisy will not go unpunished by the Lord and wolves beware. In whatever sphere you might occupy, beware of your influence. Read this. Read Matthew 23 and repent of your hypocrisy. Okay, so what have we seen so far? One, hypocrisy is idolatry, masquerading as devotion. And two, hypocrisy has casualties. Hypocrisy is not a closed system where it's just me and God. No, it's a stench that fills a room. It warps the word of God. It neuters our worship. And it harms our community. The wrath of God stands rightly against hypocrisy. And we must root it out of our lives. Well, how? How do we do that? That brings us to our third point. What is the cure for hypocrisy? What is the cure or hypocrisy. Look with me starting at verse 20. Jesus has just made the point that what goes into a person, you know, what he eats, is not what makes him unclean. And then he says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. With these words, Jesus is bringing into stark relief what the Pharisees have been obscuring that it's not our hands that need cleansing, it's our hearts. We in ourselves are unclean and defiled. You can clean the outside of your life all day long. Be a Pharisee of Pharisees, of Pharisees. Scrub and scrub and scrub and have the most put together life and pass as holy in your religious community. But you cannot stop your heart from pumping out evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, wickedness, slander, sensuality, on and on. Hypocrisy is a heart problem. And the cure is a brand new heart. That is what you need, a new heart. You know, it hadn't occurred to me until last night when I was trying to go to bed and thinking through some of these things that King David's prayer in Psalm 51 is a, is a hypocrite's prayer. It's the prayer of confession of a hypocrite. David has stolen another man's wife and had that man killed to try and cover up his crime. And Nathan the prophet comes to David and tells him a parable about a king 
who had all these sheep. He could have chosen any one of these sheep to slaughter, but instead he fixed his eyes on the, on the one sheep of this poor man who loved that sheep like a pet. And he put that sheep to, he, he took that sheep for the slaughter. And David, and he asked David, what should be done? to this man who did this. And David responds, Surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And Nathan roars back, You are the man. You are the man. And David is humble. David writes in Psalm 51, words like this, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In sin did my mother conceive me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David took proper account of his condition. He was woefully sick and unclean and had no recourse but to be cleansed within from without, that God would clean him and give him a new heart because the heart he had in and of himself was continually set on evil. The first step in repenting of hypocrisy is to take off the mask and face the truth. We are that man. I am a hypocrite. Learn to say it. Learn to say the words, I am a hypocrite. I do not live up to my ideals. I am more austere with others than I am toward myself. I have a heart far from God, but I I go through the motions and I put on a good show. I am a hypocrite. For most of us, that is a terrifying confession. Because when wearing the mask has worked so well for us for so long, we come to think, I can't afford to take this mask off. My whole life is built on this mask. I can't incur the loss of reputation. I can't face honestly what's true of me. And I don't have the power to change. I I can't afford to drop the act. And I would say to you, you cannot afford not to. Not only in the eternal sense can you not afford not to. That is, in that a hypocrite will not inherit the kingdom of God. You must repent. But even in your life right now, honestly ask yourself, is your hypocrisy working for you? We've well established it doesn't work for the worship of God. It doesn't work for the people of God. Which is alone reason alone uh, to drop the act. But really consider, is the division in dishonesty of hypocrisy actually working for you? Do you feel whole? Psalm 16 says, the sorrows of those who run after idols shall multiply. Wouldn't it be better 
to receive the grace of repentance and be restored to oneness in Christ. To drop the act of being a divided person and lean on the grace of God to be a whole person. Tell who you need to tell and walk in the light. I had someone come to me recently and do this, living a double life in ways, and he came and said, I need to tell you these things. And it was beautiful. Integrity is a glorious, good thing. You might ask, Matt, how can I? How do I know there is grace for me to take this step walking into the light? That leads to the second step. First step, take off the mask. Second, look at your Redeemer and let him look at you. Stand honestly before him and say, I need your help. The real me desperately needs you. King David was right about the man in the parable. That man deserves to die. And we all feel that about hypocrisy. We love to hate the hypocrite. But who will love the hypocrite enough to help him? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one hope of the hypocrite. He dies for the hypocrite who deserves to die. He dies in your place and mine to give you the forgiveness of sins and take on himself the wrath of God. And in raising to new life, he makes you new and is making you new. And he has made you clean by his blood and is making you clean. And this is the only way you can be clean. If your hands are stained with sin, how can you use them to make yourself clean? You must be clean from without. Someone else must clean you from the inside out. And that is what Jesus promises. That's what God promises. Look, listen to the beautiful words of Ezekiel 36. And see how passive you are in this gift. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The power to change comes from God. You must be made new. You must be cleansed. You must be renewed. Jesus creates a clean and new heart in us. He kills the hypocrite in us and puts in its place a real person, his own spirit, to guide you. The final hope of the hypocrite is that he can drop the act because God has acted in Christ to give him true righteousness and with it his approval 
and his delight as a son, as a gift, that God might be glorified. Because why, in the end, do hypocrites do what they do? They want to be loved. They want honor and glory. And they go about it in a wicked way that God sees right through. You can be cleansed evil in your heart through the grace of God. But what will it take to drop your hypocrisy? You're going to have to give up your own glory. But by God's immeasurable grace, you will instead come to share in his. And my friend, that is a much better glory than you could ever achieve. Stand in the grace of the gospel beneath the cleansing waters of his love. Let us take courage to pursue integrity and repent of our hypocrisy. God is gracious to receive us and lead us in new life. Let's pray. Father, your promise of grace is our only hope. Only because of your grace can we step out from the lives that we have built for ourselves and walk in the light and walk honestly. Help us. Many of us are deeply afraid of integrity. Help us to trust in your promises, to believe that you are good, that there is forgiveness for us that we can afford to drop the act, and in fact, we must help us. Give us always a clear vision of your immeasurable grace. You are good. We love you because you have first loved us. Amen.